All right. Geek quiz. Are ready for a geek quiz? We live in a day and age of terms and conditions, right? Anything, anybody in here ever actually read the terms and conditions before you downloaded an app? Like read them completely? That's a lot more than I expected, by the way. Okay, the rest of us, do you just see terms and conditions, scroll all the way to the bottom, hit agree? Yeah. I'm like, you know what? They can see me and hear me anyway. I just might as well give them access to my microphone and to my camera and to my... Just, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They're watching anyway. Terms and conditions. <clears throat> How boring is that? I mean, really. Those of you that read it, you probably weren't like enthralled and said, Yes! So glad I read that. That just made me feel alive. No. But you probably know more than the rest of us about what you're actually signing up for, what the app might actually do, what you're giving them access to. There's an old saying <clears throat> that you may be familiar with. The devil is in the... Wow. Details. That's right. You know what we don't really like? details. Some people like really love to dig in and wow, you know, give me more, give me tell me more. But generally we want generalizations, right? Just tell me what I need to know enough so that I can just do what I need to do, especially in our breakneck society where everything is from here to here to here to here and get this done so you can get this done. And like I'm listen to this, I'm almost midterm in my internship, which means it's really close. Got my graduation audit in the mail the other day. And I just want to get there. I don't want to deal with the details of actually going to Hamlet's office and doing what I'm supposed to do. Just send me my diploma. That'd be so much better, right? But the devil is in the details. But I want to propose something to you this morning. I believe God is in the details. I mean in the details. We're going to look at three verses today, three. <clears throat> and I could literally be here till three o'clock this afternoon on these three verses. Brian's like, no, you cannot. <laughs> I will not be, but I could be. I'm, I'm, I kid you not. I, I was writing and studying and hunting and pecking and Finally, last night, I'm like, I've just got to stop. I've got to stop. Just I, my, my brain was overwhelmed and overloaded. But what I want to tell you this morning is God is in the details. And we're going to see some glorious details today. Down to words, down to verb tenses. And everybody's like, oh, yay. But let me tell you guys, today especially... I want us to be aware that God is in the details. <clears throat> so, Romans, the Mount Everest of Scripture that we are climbing and we are getting in rarefied air. You better put on your oxygen masks because this stuff is getting making me lightheaded and dizzy. Blessings are the results of being right with God. We're going to read verses 1 through 14 of chapter 6 again. Today we will focus on verses 5 through 7. Last week we looked at 1 through 4. But again, as much as we need the details, we need the overview as well. That's what I want to do with this verses 1 through 14. So we'll stand, if you would, as we read the Bible together, as we, as we give attention to what Paul talked about to Timothy, the public reading of the Word. You know what? This is powerful. Not just this passage. This is powerful. The public reading of the Word of God is something that God endorses. And that's why we stand because like, yes, God, amen. We agree with you. This is important. God is working right now and He's going to talk about working. Let's read this. Let me stop talking. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Let me pray. You are a good, good Father. And we are loved by You. God, today, in the details, would You please show us who You are and what You've done, who we are and what You want to do in us and through us. By the power of Your Holy Spirit, God, shed Your love abroad in our hearts, and give us a passion today for the details. And may we be overwhelmed by them. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Quickly, where we've been, where we are. Point one of our outline was sin, the need for being right with God. Everybody who has ever been conceived was conceived in sin. We are sinners, and we saw later that we're sinners by imputation. God imputed Adam's sin to us so that everybody, when, when Adam sinned, all sinned. So everybody has a need to be made right with God because we are not conceived right with God. Second point was the way to be right with God, the means for being right with God is justification by faith alone. It's a gift of God. There is no other way than by faith Believing in who Jesus is and what He did. <clears throat> Which brings us to where we are presently. Blessings. Once you are made right with God, there are blessings involved. Let me tell you, there are blessings involved. And so, point three is the results of being right with God. On the way, we've seen Haitian Station, expiation. Will we do this every week? Probably not. But while we're here, expiation is God taking the guilt and shame of our sin away from us. Propitiation is Him placing that guilt, that shame, that sin on Christ and pouring out His wrath on that sin. We're going to talk about that today. God poured out His wrath on our sin on the person of Christ. That's propitiation. Imputation, we were imputed Adam's sin, but we're also imputed Christ's righteousness. We get Jesus' perfect life in place of ours. Justification is I have the right to stand in God's presence and salvation... I have been saved, I am saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved finally. And last week we added an Asian to Asian Station, sanctification. And again, we're going to crack the door open to sanctification a little bit further today. Sanctification is the process of becoming holy through my life after I have been justified. Again, very important, justification precedes sanctification. Sanctification is not you earning your salvation. You were justified as a judicial act at one time in the past. It happened. You were justified, declared not guilty, and then we start to live in such a way that we show that we understand what has happened. That's sanctification, which ultimately leads to our final salvation. Sanctification is a process that God takes us through in the process of salvation until we are eternally, finally, completely saved. Is that clear? All right. So, today, this is our passage. <clears throat> For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. 
we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Let's jump in here. Verse 5. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Well, looky, 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 what's our first word? It seems like I could start every message this way. For. It's either for or therefore at the beginning of every passage. Again, look at this chain that the Apostle Paul is just adding to a link, adding to a link. This, 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 this. For, this, 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 this. Therefore, this, 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 this. It's through the whole book. So for is our first word. So let's quickly look at what we just saw prior in verses 1 through 4 so that we can know what this for is relating back to. Last week in verses 1 through 4, we looked and the passage spoke of not continuing in sin because we had died to sin when we were baptized into Christ and His death. Remember that if you were here? Those of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into His death. And we talked about um, when we were baptized... We were also buried with Him so that, as at the end of verse 4 says, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And we talked about making the transition from objective truth, which is true no matter what you think about it. When it's cloudy, the sun is still in the sky, right? Even though you can't see it. The objective truth is the sun is still there. doesn't matter if you can see it, feel it, understand it. Objectively, the sun is still there. When the clouds go away, our subjective reality is I feel the warmth of the sun. I see the glare of the sun. So we talked about transitioning from objective truth that is true no matter what we believe about it into subjective reality where that truth affects our everyday lives so that we might walk in newness of life. The transition from objective truth truth that is true regardless of your experience, to living that truth out in subjective experience where the true truth becomes our experience in our everyday lives. But, let me ask you a question. How many of us feel like we died to sin? Is that your common everyday experience? Yeah, I'm just dead to sin. Yeah, I died to sin. I remember when it happened. I was on my grandma's front porch and I died to sin. And since then, I've had no issues whatsoever. Is that how you feel? Anybody feel that way? Maybe you people that read the terms and conditions? Yes, it has happened. Yeah. But that's the objective truth. But our subjective reality doesn't always pan out that way. We're going, wait a second, I know the Bible says this, but why don't I feel it? Why don't I see it? Because I'd like to feel it. I'd like to say, yeah, I'm dead to sin and not just say it with words. I'd like to experience the truth of it. That's what we're talking about, making that transition. Do you really feel that you died to sin, that sin has no sway or no influence over us? How about that newness of life thing? Maybe you felt that to a point every now and then. What we will look at today will help us to see how we can practically really live out the truth of verses 1 to 4 and walk in newness of life and understand that we are dead to sin. Which is why our verse here, verse 5, starts with 4. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 4. Because if we have been united with Him, with Jesus, in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Do you see the connection between verses 4 and 5? So that we might walk in newness of life for if we have been united with Him. We can walk in newness of life like the resurrected Christ because if we have been united with Him in a death like His... Do you see that? Now let's dig into verse 5. If we have... The statement, if we have, can just as easily and rightly be translated as, 
since we have. Okay, if we, if we have, you can say just as assuredly since we have. Uh, Colossians 3 says, if then you have been raised up with Christ, and it means since you have been raised up with Christ. If we walked in the door today, we're under the roof. Since we walked in the door today, we're under the roof. Okay? So get that in, get, get that in your mind. Since you have. Since you have been united with Him. <coughs> it's not an option that can be taken if it is wanted. For the believer, since we have been united with Christ. Last week the focus was on being baptized in Christ. Being immersed in Christ. In union with Him. And that is a done deal for the believer. That's finished. That's done. That was a one-time crisis point where it happened. Right? Yes? Now look at the tense in verse 5. If what? We have been. Now that single Greek word that we translate as we have been is the Greek word gegonamen. G-E-G-O-N-A-M-E-N. So we have been is one Greek word, and that one Greek word means to be made, finished, and to become. We have been means finished, to be made, to become. Now I love the word finished in that definition. And now let me tell you, here we go, here's some details. Let me tell you the verb tense of that one Greek word. We have been. You ready? How many of you just love grammar? There are some people that love grammar, right? Any word nerds in here? Awesome. I love it. I love it. <clears throat> so we have been. What's the verb tense and mood? There's a tense and a mood, mood to a verb. It's a perfect, active, indicative, first person, Plural verb. Like what the? <laughs> Perfect, active, indicative, first person, plural verb. Now what's that mean? Let me tell you what each of those means. Perfect tense means an action or circumstance occurred earlier than the time under consideration, often focusing on the resulting state rather than on the occurrence itself. You track them with me? Perfect tense means something happened back there and it's having continuing effects into the present and into the future. So you're not really concerned as much as what happened back there, but as the effects of what happened back there is having on you right now. That's perfect tense. Are you with me? Because that's important. That's a detail and it's important. Perfect tense. Perfect tense verb is talking about something that happened in the past with effects into the future. Now, remember I said we were perfect indicative. Indicative is the mood of the word. Now, don't, don't, don't go to sleep on me here, okay? Stay with me. This is important. Indicative is the mood of the verb. Indicative mood either makes a statement or asks a question. Indicates something, Right? Now, is the Holy Spirit asking a question here? We have been? He's not saying, have we been? He's saying, we have been. So he's making a statement. So, so the mood is he's making a statement of fact. He's not asking your opinion. It's a fact. It happened. It is objective truth. Perfect indicative first person means the writer is referring to himself or a group. And here Paul is saying we. So it's him and the people he is writing to. Which, if we reach, reach way back to the first chapter, we know that he is writing to those, quote, in chapter 1, I think it's verse 7, I didn't write it down, I think it's verse 7. He's writing to those loved by God and called to be saints. So he is writing to himself and the group that contains those people. So he's writing to the believers in Rome and the Holy Spirit in His wisdom preserved this letter for us. So the first person here is for those loved by God and called to be saints. 
Oh, when the saints go marching in. Oh, when the saints go marching in. Oh, how I want to be in that number. So let me ask you a question. Are you in that number? Are you a saint? So if you are a saint, we is referring to you as well. You're in the collective we there. In the we have been. Are you a believer? If you are, have you been justified by grace alone, through faith alone? Then you are in this verse. You are in this we. We have been. So that's important. Paul's not just talking to Roman Christians. The Holy Spirit is saying we who are loved by God and who are called to be saints. Which makes the first person plural, which was the end of our long train there. It's not just I, it's we. <coughs> Excuse me. It's not just Paul, but the plural we. So we have been... Seems innocuous, but that's a loaded statement. It's loaded. We have been. It happened to us in the past, and its results have far-reaching effects into the present and the future, to the redeemed. And what are the effects? What is Paul referencing here? We have been united with Him in a death like His. Him being Jesus, in a death like His, which was what? How was Jesus killed? Crucified, hung on a tree, excruciating. We are our word excruciating from crucified, painful, awful, terrible, sure death. <clears throat> so we've been united with him in a death like his. Now we mentioned this last week, and we said in our that in our baptism into Christ, his experience became our experience. We became one with Him to the extent that when He died on the cross almost 2,000 years ago, we died too. Now here in verse 5, we see the word united. For if we have been united. And actually the word we translate united, actually the phrase united with Him is one Greek word. And this is monstrous. Are you ready? United with Him. Sumfutos. Sounds like Oriental. Sumfutos. Sumfutos. The authorized version translates this word as planted together. United with Him. Planted together. Now look at this definition. Born together with of joint origin, connate, congenital, innate, implanted by birth or nature, grown together, united with kindred. So when we talk about united with, this is what that phrase means. Now you talk about details. Let me walk through this definition. Now again, you are united with Him. You who were crucified with Him, who died in a death like His, have been united with Him. What does that mean? United with Him means born together with, of joint origin. Connate. Anybody know what that word means? I had to look up a definition of my definition. It means existing in a person or thing from birth. That's what connate means. Of parts united so as to form a single part. Now keep in mind we're talking about being united with Jesus. Congenital. Anybody know what a congenital birth defect is? It's something that happened from birth. You had it from the time that you were born. Present from birth. Having a particular trait from birth. Innate. Innate means inborn. Implanted by birth or nature. Now, do you get all that? That is, that is vast. And if it was just a definition, we'd say, okay, good definition. But what this is saying is, this is our experience once we have been united with Jesus. We are born together with Jesus. 
we have a joint origin with Jesus. We exist in Jesus from birth. What birth? Verily, verily, I say unto you, unless you are born again, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. Let me tell you what, guys. When you were born again, you know what happened? You got born again. And you were born again with Christ. United with Him, grown together with Him, kindred with Him, implanted by birth into Christ. Of joint origin with Christ. That is a miracle. And that changes everything. You have been united with Him. When we were born again, listen, all of Christ, His person, His traits, His experiences became ours. They were implanted in us from the time of our new birth. All of them. All of Him united with Him. How? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. How did God do that? I don't know. But He says it here, right? We're not even halfway through the first verse. Talk about pact. So since we've been united with Him, in what way? In a death like His. Now what does that mean? Remember, we said last week that we were baptized into His death. So again, we're seeing that referenced. In our union with Him, His experience, his experience was, is, and will be our experience. But it doesn't stop at His death. Look at the end of the verse. If we have been united with Him in a death like His, then what? We shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Now my thought would be that Paul would say here, since we died with Him, we were also resurrected with Him. But look at the verb tense. God's in the details. We shall be. Now, I do owe a direct shout out to John Piper here because it was studying and reading his notes and listening to his message that he pointed this out. I'm pretty sure... I would have seen this as something that has already happened even though it doesn't say that. I would have just thought, okay, I died with Him. Yes, I'm resurrected with Him. But that's not what the verse says. Is it? Am I right? Am I wrong? Word nerds, is that past, present, or future tense? We shall be. We shall eat lunch today. Are we eating lunch right now? If you are, shame on you. I don't think anybody's eating lunch right now. Ellen's looking around going, is somebody eating? Is he publicly shaming someone? We we shall be. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm assuming you are looking at the verse, but you're not. (laughs) If we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. That's future tense. So I I would think that he would say we died with him and we were resurrected with him like it's something that has already happened. And it has. There are plenty of references that say we shared in his resurrection. Again, I mentioned earlier Colossians 3.1, if then you have been raised up with Christ. Since then you have been raised up with Christ. That did happen. Our shared experience included his resurrection. But that's not what the Holy Spirit through Paul is referencing here. Here it says we shall be united with Him in a resurrection like His. 
If we were united with Him in a death like His, we shall be. We shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Why focus on the future here? Again, John Piper points out that this verse gives us hope now by covering our past and our future. We have been united with Him in a death like His. That's the past. And we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. That's the future. So what's that say for our hope right now? That's a pretty good safe bet, right? Our past is taken care of. Our future is sealed. So how much hope should that give us right now? We can point back to the past, taken care of, point into the future, taken care of, right now. Taken care of. And that's good news. Because the past has effects in the future. The future has effects that I don't know yet, but I'm going to know them. And so as I press on, as Paul would say to the Philippians, I press on toward a sure goal. It's not up in the air. Am I going to make it or not? I shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. That's good news. Right? Oh, yeah. I don't worry about the future too much. Well, you should. Not worry about it. You should be comforted by the future, by the certainty of the future. (coughs) Excuse me. If we died with Him in the past, and if we are certain that we will share in a resurrection like His, how does that affect our now? We have to be certain that we understand our union with Jesus in the past act and in the future certainty. And if we are, then we can be certain that we are in union with Him now, sharing in His life now. We're in the middle of these two things right now. There will be much more on this later in the book, but stop and think about that for a minute. How would it affect you if you really knew and believed that the life of Christ is available to aid you right now? The very life of Christ. Let me ask you a question. Is Jesus Christ tempted to sin now? That's a softball. Lob. No! Jesus is not sitting in heaven going, Oh man, should I click this button on the computer? Oh man, should I look at this picture? Oh man, what if? Let me tell you what, Jesus Christ is not doing any of that right now. Jesus Christ is reigning and ruling as sovereign over everything in holiness and splendor. And His life is available to me right now because I'm in the middle of the past and the future. I don't know, maybe I'm closer to the future than I am to the past. We have to be certain that we understand our union with Jesus in the past act and in the future certainty. And if we are, then we can be certain that we are in union with Him now, sharing in His life. How would it affect you if you really knew and believed that the life of Christ is available to aid you now? Not a Christ-like influence, but the very life of Jesus Himself, available as we realize our union with Him, past, present, and future. If we are certain that we were crucified with Him, and if we are certain that we will be resurrected with Him, then we can be certain that we are in union with Him now. Listen, believer, you are in union with Him now. And that is good news. Verse 6. You're like, oh, this one's longer than the last one. We're never going to get here. We won't spend as much time on this one. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So how does all of this affect us now? Well, we know that our old self was crucified with Him. And I think we covered that pretty well last week. If you weren't here, you can listen to it. But why? Why was our old self crucified with Him? In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. 
Now what's that mean? What is the body of sin? I used to think that it meant our physical bodies. Our body of sin. That this old nasty sinful body. Got a problem with that, that now. I've got a problem with that now though. Because the Bible <clears throat> says in Romans, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to do what? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So what are we supposed to present to God as our spiritual worship? This crude matter. <laughs> our bodies. So does God want to do away with our body? You're like, well, our sinful body He does. You only got one? Right? Anybody got a spare body at home? Because let me tell you what, I could use it sometime. Maybe not yours. That would be weird. 1 Corinthians 6.15 Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ to make them members of a prostitute? Never! What are our bodies here? Members of Christ. We were united with Him to the point that our bodies are members of Christ. So does God want to do away with our body? No. He does not want to do away with our body. <clears throat> so what could this body of sin mean? Let me tell you what I think it means. I think it means a body of sin in like a judicial sense. If you're building a case against somebody, what do you do? You build a body of evidence. Somebody that has built a career says, this is my body of experience. This is what I've done. This is my collection of who I am, what I've done. This is the collection of evidence that I have against the defendant. A body of evidence. What about a body of sin? Anybody got a collection of sins? I got a big one. And they're not really neatly organized. And they're not in mint condition. I think that's what this is referring to. And I'm really glad that I think this is what that's referring to because I used to think that I needed to get rid of my old crummy, dirty body. And I really don't think that's what Paul's saying here. The body of sin. <clears throat> so in that realm, our old self was crucified with Jesus in order that the collection of sin that would condemn us might be brought to nothing. Did you get a hold of that? Doesn't that work? Am I reaching here? Do you think I'm just out of line? Throw the stones if you think I'm out of line. Somebody's got stones in their pockets. We've got questions we need to talk anyway. <clears throat> It'll work really well with verse 7 when we get there. So stay with me. <clears throat> And then you take into account the end of verse 6 so that we would no longer be what? Enslaved to sin. Oh, you don't have it up there. I keep doing that to y'all. I'm sorry. <clears throat> We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Why? So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Hmm. If, a, if the body of sin, in a judicial sense, is in place here, why would we be enslaved to sin? How many times do we look back at this body of sin and go, Oh, man. I am guilty. I am awful. What, what is one of the devil's main jobs? He is the accuser of the brethren. And what does he point out? He points to that body of sin. Look at all of that. And you're going to say that you're righteous? You're going to say that you're favored and blessed by God? Look at this body of evidence that I have against you. You are a sinner. And I can tell by all these sins that fill up your past until this day. Don't tell me that you're not guilty. 
You ever been enslaved to that guilt? Well, I have. But the body of sin might be brought to nothing. All of that stuff back there, you're running, you hear the accuser of the brethren, you look back, it's not there anymore. I look back and my body of sin has been brought to nothing. Nothing. But I know it was back there. I know what I did. And God says, nope. Nothing. Your body of sin is gone. I want you to let that sink in for just a second. You're running the race. The devil's just pounding on you. Remember when you did that and you turned to look at it and you see nothing. Nothing. You're like, where'd it go? Because it's not there anymore. It's not there anymore. It has been brought to nothing. The guilt of that body of sin is gone. You try to approach God. You ever had this experience? You try to approach God, but you feel so guilty you think, well, I better not approach Him. You think there's no way he could, he could welcome me or want me to be with Him. I did this or I did that. Surely He's mad at me. Surely He's sad about me. Not for me, about me. Surely He's disgusted by me. But if the body of sin, the collection of all your sins is done away with, we are not enslaved any longer to sin. And dadgummit, that's powerful. Very powerful. There's no guilt. Listen to me, church. There is no guilt in God's presence for the child of God. And, and I'll say that again. There is no guilt in God's presence for God's children. So if you're feeling guilt over something, you're either listening to yourself or you're listening to the enemy because your body have, of sin has been brought to nothing. God is not saying you better feel real guilty about this because that was awful. Like a dog that used the bathroom in the house and you take it and you rub its nose in it. Now you laugh. We think that's what God does to us. Look at what you did. You should be ashamed of yourself. That's not what God is saying to you, Christian. The devil says, look what you did. And you turn around to see it and it's not there anymore. It's not there anymore. That's powerful. That's awe-inspiring. That's love inspiring. There is no guilt in God's presence for the child of God because we know that sin, those sins, were punished fully and completely on the cross when we were crucified with Christ. Propitiation. That's powerful. There's no reason to think or even feel like God would not welcome us. There's no penalty box where you have to spend time there until God's okay with us coming to Him. And I used to think this. I would sin, and then I would think, I need to pray. But then I think, well, God doesn't want to hear from me right now. I'll let Him cool off. Then I'll come up the road with my well-rehearsed speech like a good prodigal should of how bad I am and how good He is. But not right now. Maybe later. But listen, church, if our sin is punished, if our sin is dealt with already, I don't have to wait. I don't have to guiltily sulk and feel worthless. I approach the throne of grace with confidence to receive help in my time of need. Knowing that my old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing 
so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That is potent. Verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And now this. <laughs> oh my, this. For one who has died. Again, I think we've covered this pretty good. When Christ died, those in union with Him died as well. And if someone is dead, surely they are free from sin. Dead men tell no tales, and dead men don't sin, right? Right? And sitting weekend at Bernie's, where Bernie's, you know, anybody see weekend at Bernie's? Huh? It was a long time ago. If you haven't, don't watch it, okay? It's not worth it. Bernie was a dead guy and they didn't want people to know he was dead, so like all weekend they like made him wave and put sunglasses on and propped him up in the corner. But dead men don't sin, right? I mean, again, softball. Do dead men sin? Nope. They can't. They're not even tempted by sin. But there's that pesky issue of subjective truth. There's that pesky issue of real life. Right? So, am I dead? And am I free from sin? Or am I dead and I'm still being affected by sin? Or is there some crazy combination of these two possibilities? And I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, this verse drove me crazy for years. Because I'm looking... And I'm going, okay, I do believe that I was crucified with Christ. I do believe that I shared in His death. So, I have died. So, I'm free from sin. But I don't feel like I'm free from sin. Man, I'm still tempted a lot. I'm still falling a lot. I'm still choosing sin a lot. So is this true or is it not? If I am dead and if I am free from sin, why in the world do I not see that? Why do I not feel that at all? This sin thing is constantly hounding me. It's beating me. It's making me feel like a fool. And it's making me wonder, what in the world am I missing? Am I not saved? Did I not die with Christ? And then there's this. Let me show you one of the most exciting words in the world for me right now. Yes, Jason. It's right there. I don't know how to pronounce it. Dedekeotai. It's one of the greatest words in the world. Right there. It's a Greek word, if you didn't know that. Ladies and gentlemen, And this is where you stand in rousing applause and go, Yes! What? What? You get it? No? Okay. Let me clue you in then. The root word for dedekeotai is dekeo. Sorry, Scott, I just don't have it. I don't have the Greek chops. I'm sorry. So, yay! Dekeo! No? <laughs> That's the root word for dedikeotai. Let me tell you what this word means. For the one who has died has been dedikeotai from sin. Now, every translation I read translated that as free. But you know what this word here means? It doesn't mean free. Now, you're going, no, wait a minute, I thought the Bible was inspired. It is. 
In the original languages, this word is perfect. And we've got translations that sometimes mess up. That doesn't mean your Bible isn't perfect. It means your Bible's still perfect and you've got a bunch of men under the leadership and guidance of the Holy Spirit who lives within them trying to best give us words and they missed this one. They missed it. And every translation I read missed it. Because this word means justified. Now let me plug that into our verse. Are you ready? For one who has died has been justified from sin. You're still not standing up and rousing applause, by the way. But you should be! Let me tell you why you should be. Justified. For one who has died, who has shared in the death of Christ, has been justified from sin. This passage is dealing with the freedom from the... Wait for it. Wait for it. Freedom from the guilt of sin. And remember we just saw that with the whole body of sin being brought to nothing so that you don't have to feel guilty anymore. The one who has died has been justified from sin. The one who has died no longer has any guilt over their sin. One who has died who has shared in the death of Christ when they were crucified with Him has been set free, has been justified, has had their guilt for their sin removed. And therefore, yes, they are free from sin, from the guilt of their sin. What if I could offer you freedom from the guilt of your sin? What if I told you God is not holding your sins against you because He punished those very sins when Jesus was crucified? There's no room for guilt because guilt would suggest that wrong was done that wasn't made right. But that's not at all what happened here. Wrong was done and it was done by me. But that wrong was rightly and justly punished till the payment due for it was paid in full. Jesus hung on the cross and He said, It is finished. And that word, you've heard it a thousand times to tell us die, it means paid in full. The penalty for your sin, the debt for your sin has been paid in full. You no longer have guilt over it because God righteously punished you for it when you shared in the death of Christ. Propitiation. God poured the wrath against my sin out upon the person of Christ and because of imputation, because of God's miracle, I don't understand it working, placed me in Christ when He was crucified so that the body of my sin might be brought to nothing. Feel guilty over your sins? You don't have to. Now, is it okay to sin? Now, we saw back in verse 1, by no means. It's not okay to sin. May we continue in sin so that grace may abound? May it never be. But your motivation is not like, well, I feel bad, so I better quit sinning. That's not your motivation. Your motivation is, I look back, there's no sin. Praise God! I don't want to do that anymore. And when you do sin, and you get up and you look back, where'd it go? It's gone. And you rejoice in the grace of God because you know that that sin was justly punished upon the cross when you were placed in Christ and you shared in union with Him of the same birth as His. That wrong was rightly and justly punished till the payment due was paid in full. God was satisfied. It was the Lord's will to crush Him, to punish Him, and therefore to punish our sins because we died with Him when we shared in His crucifixion. And when He died, we died to the guilt of our sin. When He died, we died to the guilt of our sin.
Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. And when I think that God, His Son not sparing, sent Him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, He bled and died to take away my sin. I died with Christ and I died to the guilt of my sin. I was justified when I died with Jesus. Freed from the guilt of my sin. Quickly. Four application points, and I mean quickly. We'll run through these. What's all this mean? First, first, trust God. You may never know the how. You may never understand the why. But trust Him. Believe what we just read. Believe what we've just talked about. Believe it. We'll talk about that next week, what, what it means to believe that. First, trust God. Believe Him. Second, know the truth of your union with Christ. You have been united with Christ. That is the basis of everything from here on out in the book of Romans. Our co-death, our co-resurrection, our shared life with Jesus. You have been united with Him. Trust God. Know the truth of our union with Christ. Third point of application. Listen, church. You are not a slave to sin. You're one with the boss now. And the boss is not tempted by sin. Before, and we'll talk about this more, you used to be a slave to sin. You used to have to do what sin told you to do. Not anymore. So when sin comes knocking, no thanks. I gave it the office. Go away. You can do that now. You are not a slave to sin. Some of you say, man, I don't know if this thing's got mastery over me. No, it does not. You are not a slave to sin. Trust God. Know the truth of our union with Christ. You are not a slave to sin. And listen, church, please understand as a result of what we've looked at today. Christian, believer, redeemed one, you are not guilty. You're not guilty. The gavel has swung and the gavel says justified. The gavel says right with God. The gavel says the body of sin has been brought to nothing. You've got no evidence, devil. All I see, the Father says, is the righteousness of my Son. I see sins atoned for, sins paid for, sins taken away. Please listen to me. You are not guilty. I don't understand it completely, but it's true. Let me pray. You are a good, good father. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. God, I pray that we would hear the echoes of that gavel. Not guilty. Not guilty. Not guilty. Not guilty. By the power of Your Holy Spirit, God, imprint that on our hearts and on our lives. And ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand for benediction, please? Thank you for your patience. I know that that was long. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. 
And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.